Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and so happy to be joined today by Dr. Ursula Klitsch. Ursula is a clinical psychologist, speaker, and author who teaches self-regulation to maximize physical and emotional health. She's a certified meditation teacher, a cognitively-based compassion training, and is the president of the Southeast Biofeedback and Clinical Neuroscience Association. Ursula leads workshops and lectures worldwide and her specialized program, Mindfulness-Based Biofeedback, has been published and widely applied from hospitals to classrooms around the globe. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Sharon. 
I always find our conversations inspiring, and it's both a pleasure and an honor to be here with you. Well, thank you so much. I am uh, really intrigued by your work and delighted to share it with all of the listeners out there. And I'd like to begin these conversations in general with just some of your own personal history for those who aren't familiar with you, what brought you to the path of meditation, how it's affected your life, that kind of thing. Uh, that's, that's an interesting question. I really discovered the power of meditation for myself when my first daughter was born. It's interesting mm -hmm. to reflect on that right now as it was about a week ago that was the 20th anniversary of that time. Mm. Happy, mm. happy birthday, Parker. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have a 20 year old still, still accepting that. So that moment is, is amazingly crystal clear to me. At that time, I found myself driven to be intentional with how I raised her, what I taught her, how I responded to her, and all the lessons that I was learning becoming a mother and what that was teaching me. It's interesting that at that time in my life, I was asking a lot of existential questions and started a more conscious search for some of those answers or at least the possibility of seeing and relating to the world uh, and both outer and inner experiences and, and what that meant. So what's interesting is, is sometimes I'll share this with clients. Before that time, my approach to things I was reading about meditation and its roots in Buddhism was very left-brained, I think, as many people mm -hmm. and people I, I encounter. And some of my favorite readings were by Mark Epstein, Thoughts Without mm -hmm. a Thinker, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart. I mean, that was that was the good stuff for me, combining mm -hmm. meditation and, and psychotherapy and that, my knowledge there. I was reading Buddhism Without Beliefs and other sources, just searching for clues about living life. Mm-hmm. And I would read all the way through to the point in the book where there was instructions to put the book down and practice whatever contemplative exercises were there. And what I would do is I would think about the exercise for a moment, and then I would promptly return to the reading the rest of the book. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Have you heard that before? <laughs> it's so really funny. See, yeah, I, I realized that I was rationalizing that I was already skilled at practicing teaching relaxation exercise. I kind of knew this stuff in my mind, so I could save time it's skipping over the meditations get, and getting to the meat of the material, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know where the meat really was, right? And this is how it went until that point in time when my daughter was born. And I started to get very intentionally curious. And so the moment I put that down and watched my mind, something very interesting. And it really forever changed me. And this practice of watching my mind and observing what was happening. And at the same time, I was embarking on the other, you know, real new area of my life, finally out of school, immersing myself in the practice of mind-body medicine. And my dream of, of working with patients and understanding and creating a bridge of healing for those suffering with illness and chronic pain. And so while during my own practice of meditation, I'd witnessed the power of, of sitting in the fire of emotion firsthand, I'd had those experiences of sitting down and feeling okay, 
only to have something rise to the surface, bubble up, right? And learn about what was happening for me. At other times, I'd sit with maybe a fleeting sensation and discover an emotion I didn't even know I was feeling and an underlying cause other than what I thought had triggered me, right? Those moments of, of, of brief clarity or those life bulb moments that kept me meditating. And I felt like I'd discovered the missing link that would strengthen the bridge of mind-body healing, along with reading Mark Epstein's books and, and kind of massaging the material. But officially implementing meditation in my medical practice, I was a bit hesitant to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, I worked in a place called Methodist Medical Center in Peoria, Illinois at the time. <laughs> and I thought, what would people think, right? Methodist Medical Center, was this okay? Now, I was secretly wondering how long it would be before I was called into somebody's office and asked to explain what I was doing. So mm-hmm. I was really hesitant. And I think that's, that's you know, in, in speaking to clinicians uh, since that time, that's fairly common. But mm-hmm. once again, there was a moment for me. And it was a moment, again, I can recall quite clearly that something changed. And it, to me, it's like that saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so once again, this pivotal moment, I had a patient in front of me. I can remember her to this day, 20 years ago. She was struggling with severe headaches, so debilitating they were beginning to interfere with her job. Young lady, very put together, highly skilled, highly driven. And she approached tasks in a very left-brained way, which reminded me of someone. So I taught her effective breathing with the biofeedback. I had a very clear protocol for doing that. I knew that her type A personality would mean that she would follow my directions. She'd do her homework. In that sense, she would do well. But there was something for me in that moment, a gut sense, that I would lose her. That she'd push herself, but she would give up very quickly in desperation and move to the next thing in search of a cure. Mm -hmm. I was to focus on these tasks. I just was certain that would happen. So I just recall this moment where it was the end of the session, and I would quickly give her the homework and send her off to schedule an appointment for the following week. And I just remember pausing for a while while reflecting on this feeling in my gut. I just was sitting with it and my head was chiming in. But meditation, really? Here with her? Is that going to fly? And then it just came. It was like I was just hearing the words coming out of my mouth. I explained things to her differently than I had other patients. And so the homework instead, I said, so this breathing, you've seen how to do that now in a way that your heart responds well, that your body likes. And typically I would then explain how many times I wanted them to breathe and in what way, what to do with their hands and how to sense this. Instead, I said something akin to, inviting her to sit a couple times a day and simply observe. Just observe, be present, hear, listen, and not feel pressured to do anything. Mm -hmm. Well, she agreed she'd do that. 
I wasn't sure what would happen, but I, I had done it. <laughs> wasn't very formal mm-hmm. meditation, mindfulness techniques, but along those lines of mindfulness. And when she returned, it was like a transformation. She was different immediately mm-hmm. before the mm-hmm. words came out of her mouth. She described what she had been quickly. She was super excited. Even her voice sounded different. She described sitting with her cat. Mm. She put the cat on her lap. She was describing the petting of the cat, the hearing, the cat's purr, the smelling, the touching, the paws, the peace. Mm. And that her mind was still. And she would start to notice, as we talked about this, she would start to notice some of the thoughts she had and she was just letting them go and not paying attention to them. Mm. And I thought, bingo. It's almost like something magical happened. And she had this window into meditation. And and so really, that's when it began. I started to trickle mindfulness meditation into much of my work. That's fabulous. I want to ask you because, um, you know, you can describe your work as helping those dealing with physical pain with the tools of compassion, mindfulness, and biofeedback. So I'm very curious about the biofeedback component of that, which is so much less familiar to me than the others. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, for years, like in this example, I had taught stress management using t- relaxation techniques for kids and adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, we all have ideas of relaxation techniques such as visualization or maybe progressive muscle techniques, you know, the ideas to let go of muscles, let go of your mind. Maybe take yourself somewhere else. And especially for dealing with physical health issues and pain, I could not imagine doing this without some form of biofeedback. So biofeedback really is the first powerful tool I had to teach people awareness. And and in biofeedback, we are teaching people to become aware of what's happening in their bodies. It's both a process that we're teaching them and it's a technique. So we hook people up to senses. We hook people up to muscle tension and teach them to become aware of the muscle use uh, and see how they're tensing some muscles, but yet underusing others. Um, I found that they could talk all day about how to decrease tension with me that I could clearly see them holding, but until they experienced it as tension, nothing changed. Mm -hmm. You know, I have people say, well, I'm not tense. This is pain. It's my surgery. It's my accident. I'm not tense. I'm sick. Um, And the same thing was happening with other symptoms of stress, like sweaty hands or cold Mm -hmm. hands. Time and time again, people would tell me my hands are cold because I have poor circulation or it's cold outside. Um, in biofeedback, we could hook them up to these measures of how how much of the sweat response they were getting, the electrodermal activity, and um, teach them that in situations, really by exploring situations in which they produce this increased sweat response and electrodermal activity, generating the moisture, as well as hand temperature and little thermometers that I'd place on their fingertips to teach them situations where their blood vessels constrict, causing their fingers or feet to feel cold. So I'd hook mm-hmm. people up, even even rudimentary ways, uh, when I was working with students in, in middle school, to teach them about their hand temperature. And so in this biofeedback 
piece, we're always working with the awareness and then change. Awareness and then how can we change these things that typically have, have been thought to be in under involuntary control, you know, just like we mm -hmm. blink. We're doing that, you and I both right now, without thinking about it. But I could also invite you to blink with me, you know. Um, and in that way, we can learn to control our blood flow. We can control our muscles. We can control and regulate the way our heart beats. Um, so that's biofeedback piece. And I've, I've always seen my, my job with doing that as an educator, a coach, providing instructions on the techniques for self-regulation. And in using meditation, that's where the meditation really flowed with me because it just combines so naturally in mm -hmm. helping people generate that attention and awareness of what's unfolding in the present moment. And so, you know, I find that a little bit of a balance because in biofeedback, we're teaching them, coaching them to notice what's happening. This is how you change it. Let's move towards that. In mindfulness meditation, there's the bringing the focus back on accepting what is. And it creates kind of, in some ways, a more gentle approach, especially as we talk about that kind of example with a patient who might be really pushing, or any of us who are just pushing and striving and going and and maybe we learn something. I mean, how many times do we read a magazine and it says the top 10 ways to whatever it is, get rid of stress, improve your self-esteem, right? And we try to do those things. Um, but often it's with, with such angst or lack of awareness that they're not quite so successful. And I, I find that mindfulness kind of bridges that, creates a little bit of space. So, you know, I can talk a little bit about uh, the stepwise approach that I've evolved with that, starting with the, the biofeedback, works well with starting with the meditation on breath, mm -hmm. uh, which is which is so regularly used in in introductory meditation mm -hmm. teachings. So meditation on breath, thoughts, emotion, and then finally pain. So I work with patients, whether they're coming to me for pain or not, on systematically being able to work with observing the rest, you know, watching mm -hmm. it rising, mm -hmm. falling, um, then incorporating the thoughts, and then the emotions, and sitting in fire of emotions, and then finally pain. Um, and, and with that combination, each module attends to the, the body and the mind. Mm -hmm. um, so in working with people who have gone through incredible trauma, illness, and chronic pain, I was naturally drawn to including compassion. Right. And uh, this is a piece where you and I both started talking about um, wanting to learn more about that. It, it seemed like it was the missing building block of the mm -hmm. bridge mm -hmm. between mindfulness and biofeedback for me, especially in working with individuals who were under such severe suffering. And, you know, in my mind, it was this, this building block between being and doing. Mm -hmm. So it's nice, and it was really nice when we start to see research evidence of what we see in practice, right? Mm -hmm. In the last mm -hmm. 10 years, I've witnessed that unfolding um, of compassion, just like the previous 
decade with mindfulness where where we saw that compassion was emerging as the major factor in the benefit of individuals therapeutically who are using mindfulness-based techniques. It's become an accepted practice clinically now. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, compassion work is somewhat different from helping clients build a traditionally positive self-appraisal. It's a system that cultivates the acceptance of humanness. Mm-hmm. And what is, and, and my patients were struggling with the fact that their humanness now is injured or disabled, seems so different than what they expected, what they imagined. Mm-hmm. So applying compassion building school skills, applying compassion building skills while patients are confronted with their flaws and imperfections really help them to be better at accepting both their positive and negative traits. Mm-hmm. So it's a nice recipe with the overlap of biofeedback, mindfulness, and compassion. I'm finding that people are welcoming of that piece. That's great. There are a couple of questions I'd love to ask you. One is, um, as we teach meditation uh, anchored in the Buddhist tradition, the tools for working with physical pain are often considered a template for working with emotional pain. So the skills we learn working with what's happening in our knee, we maybe apply to sadness, to grief, to loneliness, to anger, you know, anything that we consider painful. And uh, I'm curious as to whether you find that to be true. Yes, absolutely. I do find that um, I feel like both work together. Uh, they're, and in many ways are interchangeable in the tools that I'm using for emotional and physical pain. I find that practicing one informs the other. Um, and specifically when working with someone for the purpose of managing pain that is often chronic and intense, mm-hmm. I lead up to that pain. People want to jump right in. Let, I have pain. Let's work with it. How do I treat my pain with meditation? And and, you know, we start by backing up a little and starting with that breath, and then we work towards thoughts and then uh, emotions. And I feel like that piece of working with emotions, starting with those that are a small flicker and moving towards sitting in the fire of emotion, I find this helps prime them uh, mm-hmm. for when we're dealing with the pain physically. And would your suggestion be to apply some of the same tools? to looking at the emotional pain in a certain way and treating it a certain way as you would with the physical pain? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, moderating the intensity of which we stay with the emotional pain, Mm -hmm. for example, Mm -hmm. allowing it to come and go, working up with, when I work with physical pain, I really encourage people to, we start with sensation versus Pain, and I mm-hmm, encourage mm-hmm. them to start with some sensation that feels normal in their body. Many people with intense chronic illness have trouble even finding some part of their body that feels normal or okay. And we, we try to start with that and then maybe move to uh, an itch or a twitch or some ache. And um, similarly with emotion, I, I always, especially if I'm teaching a seminar, I always say, please try not to pick your biggest you know, fear, emotion, trauma to work mm-hmm, with today. Mm-hmm. Let's let's start somewhere else. So that's mm-hmm. that's one of the main ways. 
and you know, it's, I did a, um, I created a course as part of this app, the Ten Percent Happier app, about working with pain, because so many people were asking for it, and it seemed so significant, and um, you know, just people looking for tools and looking for resources in that realm, and and between my own experience and my experience teaching, and then my experience with the app, which sort of looked very specifically at the issues of pain, uh, it was really interesting just to see how. Um, some common patterns seem to emerge for a lot of people, like uh, the pattern of anticipation. You know, we we experience pain, it goes away. We can't actually let it go that easily. Yeah. You know, because we start flipping into what's it going to feel like tomorrow, what's it going to feel like next week, what, you know, patterns of isolation, like it's only me who has ever, ever suffered thus, you know, or um, this will last forever, which we actually don't know at this point in time. And, um, there's so many things, you know, it's hard enough. Pain is very, very hard to to be with. I think I would feel I was being glib if I said anything else. Um, it can be very, very hard. And yet we also have the habit of sometimes making it so much worse just by how we're relating to it. Absolutely. I, You know, and Sharon, I find, and you may find this as, as well when you're, teaching a group, a seminar, is that somehow if we start talking about this as a group with others, there's this common humanity and this universality to this that it becomes easier to sort of accept that notion and talk about the notion that we uh, may contribute to it or make it worse, right? Mm -hmm. That's a Mm -hmm. hard thing. And that's part of where, you know, my group work for meditation evolved because it's one thing to be able to, you know, kind of talk as a group about these common tendencies or flaws. It's another thing to sit in front of someone and and suggest that maybe you're making your pain worse. Of course we don't say it that way, but it it will always feel that way. And something about being able to all laugh about the way we do this uh, can help. But, you know, I go back to actually it was um, during, there was one of the, uh, one of the workshops you taught was at Kripalu many years ago. And I recall specifically in that workshop um, during that time, I had taken some of the most wonderful yoga classes I'd ever participated in, in Kripalu. And one was in the morning and it was this incredible, gentle, restorative yoga. And I thought, oh my gosh, if I could pay anybody to do something, it would be to come into my room in every morning and guide me through the process of waking up. This was like mm-hmm. a waking up gentle yoga, blankets on the ground, and we just basically kept stretching these cat stretches. But at one point, I got into this space with my arm as I was stretching it, and I had a sharp twinge. I had a pain. Now, I didn't have any pain problems in that area or anything like that, so this was just something that happens serendipitously. But what was the response? The response was very immediately to pull back from that pain, immediately to draw back and stop what I was doing. And then I took a breath as part of my practice, just automatically it came. And then I watched my mind and I I laughed to myself because I said, oh, you know, this is the piece that I teach patients. It's this fear of moving and kinesiophobia. Mm -hmm. And so with pain, that 
so quickly learned. We just, we have a pain, we want to pull back, we want it to stop. And this, you know, process of, of meditation is going into that a bit. Mm-hmm. So interesting. I think about, you know, um, in recent, ex- more recent experiences I've had with physical pain and how I would hear, as one does, you know, forever, like, oh, I got addicted because I had a physical injury and the pain meds were given to me and it was available and it was such a relief. And I used to wonder about that statement all the time. And then I had some amazing bout of pain and I thought, oh, that's how it happens. You know, I myself don't do that. I don't take things stronger than, you know, an Advil or something. But, um, you know, I could see so easily how it happens because uh, you feel so helpless and here's some relief and you don't know how you'll ever replicate that relief without it. And, uh, you know, we're just not given many tools. Absolutely. And I, I think, I think it is, um, I think it is like tools. I like you have a kind of an experience, you know, I always try to, we try to apply this then to the work we do with people. Right. And so, um, I found myself in, in, uh, ER having a gallbladder issue mm, very quickly. Mm. They, they, threw in an IV and um, something, oxycodone or something in that. And I was having a pretty severe pain and they would Mm -hmm. come check, but they wouldn't come check very often. And I learned very quickly that when they were there, I better report my high level pain because Mm -hmm. they may not show up for a while. So when the first time I told them, well, my pain's more around a four, I can tolerate it, you know, it's a five or six, I can still tolerate a little. And then they didn't come back till it was Mm -hmm. extreme. The next time I was sure to let them know it was pretty high, right? Even Mm -hmm. before it really quite got there, or I would have asked for it. So our brain does all this amazing stuff, like you said, to project into the future and anticipate and and protect ourselves, trying to protect ourselves. Mm No, so in helping the patients to manage the pain, um, part of what I work on is this ability to handle increased states of discomfort, mm-hmm. tolerating some of those smaller experiences. And then really, you know, with the mindfulness and the compassion piece, it's looking at it with curiosity. How do we teach people and how do we continue to work of looking at experiences, whether they're physical or emotional, with curiosity. You know, one of my mm-hmm. favorite phrases is, isn't that interesting? Whoa. <laughs> you know, so we go from words like this pain is killing me to mm-hmm. isn't that interesting? I just had a severe episode of shooting, stabbing pain. They're both explanations of what you're feeling. One starts to mm-hmm. create spaciousness for where to go with that. So if you were advising someone who's dealing with chronic pain, what would be the path you laid out in front of them? Would you just start them with biofeedback? Would you talk about compassion right away? Well, you know, that's such an individual sort of question Mm -hmm, in terms mm -hmm. of, uh, in terms of how I may enter, but, um, you know, one of the things in, in terms of some advice I'd give people is to even even within any therapy that they are going with is is to begin to, in line with compassion, start to work with gratitude. 
you know, this idea of gratitude. And so many times when I mention gratitude, um, people jump to to the statement that, you know, I feel grateful for this, this, and this. You know, I am grateful. I have a good family, and I'm grateful I have a job, or those things. But that kind of logical left-brain gratitude is very different from embodying a sense of gratitude, which, you know, is related to compassion. Is is this, what am I grateful for in the moment? What is something that is good right now? And in some ways, I sometimes refer to the compassion work that I do as a tough love compassion. Is it's not, um, you know, people sometimes are afraid that, you know, being compassion is just uh, patting ourselves on the back. It's okay, whatever we do. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, the idea is like have compassion for the fact that, yes, we're struggling. Yes, this is difficult. This is painful. And I'm also not good at it or I'm imperfect or all those things. Um but let's move forward. And one of the ways that, that I find moving forward and, and, and can create some space around pain is to start to notice even the small things that are good, that are pleasant, that are happening in within the moment. And um, what I mean is even those things that are happening during difficulty. If you've been suffering mm-hmm. deeply, it's it's a momentous task, right? It's one thing to say, okay, I appreciate um, the nice day at the beach or this meal that someone cooked for me, and that's good. But if we can also appreciate something, like I had a patient that I was working with this on, she began to explain that in this moment of laying on the table in the OR during this preparation for this procedure that she was waiting on for several months, in which she had endured difficult things and had to come off of her medications for the previous two weeks and was dealing with extraordinary pain. And she was told that she couldn't undergo the procedure because of something they had found uh, really on the table right there. And she described to me this moment in which she started to feel this well of tension and emotion and frustration And quickly, it was almost like she snapped into a different state. And what she said had happened is she began to take a breath and feel this warm blanket that the nurse had given to her and how another nurse was holding her and patting her on the shoulder and how the doctor had taken extra time with her to explain what had happened. And just this whole scenario of where she was able to begin to feel like the world and that space was supporting her. Mm. And that's the place of gratitude that can help us. Gratitude and compassion. She had compassion for herself in going through that. Yeah, she acknowledged it was difficult, but also compassion for what was happening around her. One of the things I found that surprised me in the course of meditation training and dealing with pain um, was the advice to titrate awareness of the pain, like not just to stay in the hardest place at all times, which is kind of what you're describing. Um, Even, you know, my Burmese meditation teacher, Sada Upandita, who was a 
very demanding, intense kind of teacher. Uh, when he was asked, how long should I pay attention to physical pain before I move my attention to something that's easier? I thought, given his personality, he was going to say, you should be with the pain until you fall over. And to my surprise, he said, don't do that. He said, don't be with it for that long. Be with it. Turn your attention to something that's easier. You can go back to the pain, perhaps, and turn your attention to something that's easier. So in meditation, that might mean listening to sound or feeling a more comforting sense somewhere else in your body, something like that, um, or doing loving kindness. And he said, it's not wrong to be with the pain and be with the pain and be with the pain, but you'll likely get exhausted. So why not try to build and balance all along the way, at least to the best of your ability? You know, so you're with the pain, you're with something else, and you come back. It's not a sign of needing remedial work or doing it wrong. That's how it's meant to be done with that kind of balance. Absolutely. I think, you know, I come to something that I have heard and, and learned personally as well, and it's this idea that life is going to give you situations you don't have to delve into them further than your comfort level. Um, and so this idea, oftentimes students will ask me, patients will ask me as, as they're learning meditation, you know, if I have an itch, what should I do? Should I, you know, what if my leg's falling asleep? Should I move? Should I sit there? How long should I sit there? How bad should I get? You know, should I start worrying that I'm going to have an embolism? What's the right time to 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 move? And, and, you know, what I tend to go back to, and there's no right or wrong here, but with those experiences as well as pain, is that, you know, spend a bit of time, spend a moment, some sense of attending and and trust that your gut will will move along a timeline that is right for it. And sometimes that may be, whoops, we've noticed the pain. Let's go back to the breath. Let's go right back to the mm -hmm. breath. Um, and other times, as you become more comfortable, you may invite yourself to explore that a bit more, to stay with it. And that's in line with kind of moving people through emotions and smaller emotions, the bigger mm -hmm. ones and comfort, and then sensations to pain and kind of giving yourself permission to go back to that safe place or comfortable place, that place of breath that's comfortable or the loving kindness statements coming back to, okay, you know, I've attended to the pain. I've attended to the pain. Let me go back to inviting myself to feel safe, to feel loved to live with ease, what's going to happen is the body is going to call your attention again, especially with pain time and time again. Um, and so respond that allows the spaciousness. And it is very individual. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's important because people can feel like, again, along that idea that they have to just attack right. it, and deal right. with it, push it out, cut it out. It's different. And inevitably, I'm sure um, in the course of treatment, you come in close contact with family members and partners and close friends of those who are suffering. And uh, I'm wondering about that relationship. And do you um, kind of advise them? Do you try to help them see a way through with um, their friend or whoever it is and to uh, be a little different 
than that attacking mode? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this brings me back right to the roots of compassion, right? When we're interconnected, when another human being suffers, we join them when we Mm -hmm. feel compassion. And I think Tanya Singer did the work when we're looking at empathy, even Mm -hmm. the empathy Mm -hmm. of pain is, does relate, empathy of pain does relate to areas of the brain when somebody else is having pain, but it's not the same exact area. So Mm -hmm. we can feel a level of compassion there. Um, Compassion is not only the awareness and a joining with them, but a desire to alleviate it. Paul Gilbert said that. And um, yet there's still limits to what we can do for others. And that's where Mm -hmm. self-compassion becomes important. That's been described as bearing witness to one's pain and responding Mm -hmm. to those imperfections with kindness. And understanding Christopher Germer said that you've said that so you know my advice for individuals when they have a loved one or even come across um, somebody with pain chronic pain or illness complex illness in their life both physically and emotionally is to also get some help or support uh, because you're also dealing with with difficulty as much as the other person is um, but in a different way mm-hmm yeah, very much so. And I'm also curious, um, as you know, of course, uh, probably far better than I, the early research in meditation was so much emphasizing uh, mindfulness. And and it was easy to understand why, because, you know, when John Kabat-Zinn, for example, formulated mindfulness-based stress reduction, in itself, it's a program, it's replicable, doesn't change much between providers. And so it was a a wonderful means of doing some research since everyone was basically doing the same thing in the same order. Um, and these days it seems to me, you know, I'm not a scientist and I'm looking from some distance that compassion research has kind of caught on fire and that many more people seem to be involved with it and engaged with it. Yeah, I do think so. It's interesting because in, in presenting the mindfulness and compassion work to uh, the biofeedback societies, among other places, uh, one of the things that I did is I pulled up a slide of how many studies, you know, in the whatever last decade had the word mindfulness. And we looked at periods of time. We looked at each year in the growth chart. And then I, I pulled that up for compassion. And mm-hmm. while the numbers started quite low, there is a definite um, trend and has been for the last decade. Um, you know, so many studies are coming out that even within, because I know that there's a little bit, uh, there can be questions for people about, okay, what's, you know, the moment we find something that works, we want to know what, what works better and when to apply it, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow we want those numbers or, or clear-cut ways of looking at it. Um, but there, there is quite a bit of overlap, but a lot of difference in, in terms of what we're getting with, with compassion. And um, some will argue then that when, when we're having an increase in, in benefit in some of the mindfulness programs, that a lot of that is for people that are able to generate compassion through that self-compassion, compassion mm-hmm. towards others. Um, but the compassion work, like with cognitively based compassion uh, therapy and treatment, the idea is that we're really working towards a 
stepwise approach and developing mm-hmm. that that compassion. So um, that's nice. That that speaks to me in terms of being able to to kind of teach people some of those those pieces. Um, you know, in terms of studies on compassion and mindfulness, one one of the studies that that has stuck with me is uh, one where it showed that increase in self-compassion reduced the connection and correlation between cognitive reactivity and depression. Mm-hmm. And so what that means to me, this was a study done by Shapiro, and it's, it's really almost a decade old at this point, but it was a pivotal study in my thinking where uh, starting to look at while we're making changes while we're creating changes psychologically for people through cognitive therapy um, and helping people improve their thinking, their logic, their, their patterns are relating to others, that we can make some changes there. But many of those patterns still creep up and are there. The interesting thing to me became that maybe we don't have to try so hard to help people and people don't have to try so hard to eradicate all of their mm-hmm. you know, irrational thoughts, but rather if we teach them compassion, that those they can still have some of those thoughts on a minor level, but it's not causing them distress, right? So mm-hmm. it's something that you've mentioned so many times is, is you know, over the years, and you, you've been so wonderful, Sharon, to share with everybody, you know, some of your own thoughts and, and examples and what happens to the mind. And the fact that even after studying meditation, some people like you that have been studying even much longer than I have and, and uh, that is that we still have the thoughts. I mean, we have some level of thoughts. We may have different thoughts. We may have improved in the level, the intensity, but we still have them, but we don't allow them to create the level of distress. Mm-hmm. That's fabulous. So just to close off um, this conversation, I was wondering if you wanted to lead a short meditation practice or, or some kind of reflection to, to close this time together. I would love to. I would love to, Sharon. Um, so many options. I think <laughs> I'll take a few minutes and, and see if since we ended on thoughts, um, See if we can kind of tune into the thoughts that may be there mm-hmm. for ourselves and the others listening. So I'm going to invite you and all the listeners to get into a comfortable position for themselves. You can be sitting and maybe laying down. It really doesn't matter. And take a deep breath. And allow your gaze to soften, the eyes to drop wherever comfortable, and simply reflect on this moment. Simply notice what is happening. And then notice where your attention is drawn to. Did you focus on the outside world? Sounds, 
people off in the distance. Perhaps the temperature of the room. Maybe your attention was drawn to things internal. Bodily sensations. Perhaps even discomfort. Physically. Or emotionally. Perhaps you notice thoughts. Whatever the case, simply notice. Without judgment, simply notice. If you've been practicing meditation, you've probably noticed variations each time you sit in your overall energy, your emotions, your thoughts, sensations. They can take on different forms at different times. Regardless of the differences, you may have already begun to notice patterns in your way of thinking. At different times in your life, you may find certain thoughts reoccur frequently. That's okay. At different points in time in your life, you're mastering unique tasks. Paying attention to the themes of your thoughts during your meditations will help you understand the challenges that are before you. Certain thoughts will draw your attention over and over. Think of them as insistent visitors. You may find that these visitors will continue to come calling if you push them away. But getting involved doesn't seem helpful. For now, instead of doing either, allow yourself to notice the visitor and create a name for it.
if you find yourself jumping to the future, you may refer to that as future tripping. Or perhaps the events of the past as a classical music and movie matinee. you find yourself judging, you may call up the name Judge Judy. Allow yourself to see the humor in these visitors. For some people who are visual, you may even imagine the way they dress when they come knocking at your mind's door. Naming the thoughts can help you in a number of ways. It can help you by spotting the thoughts quicker. It can also help you by releasing them more easily. It's like having a bus pick up all of the people going to the same place on one route and drive them away rather than having to call a cab each time someone has to go somewhere. You can allow yourself to release all future tripping thoughts. Allow yourself to return to this breath. Allow yourself to make note of the rise and falling of your breath in your belly. Allow yourself to notice the level of heaviness or looseness in your body. And allow yourself to simply let go as you come to a close and get ready to come back to the room. Allow yourself to notice any sense of ease. In fact, 
I invite you to reflect in your mind and to open to the invitation for yourself to live with ease. As with all healing, finding the balance and changing yourself while being respectful of the needs of your body and mind, each time you sit, your experience may be different. But the process of allowing yourself to notice and observe will be the same. I invite you to remember that any time throughout the day, you may return to the sensations of this moment, to this experience, simply by dropping your eyes, taking a breath, saying to yourself, may I feel safe. May I feel loved. And may I live with ease in my body and mind. Allow yourself to begin to become aware of the room around you. You may stretch, you may feel renewed, refreshed, better than you felt before. Thank you. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today for leading that sitting. To learn more about Ursula's encouraging work, you can visit her website at www.mymindfulwayoflife.com. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com.